If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In 1381, thousands of men and women surged into London, attacking jails, burning down palaces, murdering the Archbishop of Canterbury in the Tower of London and confronting King Richard II. So what was the cause of their fury? And how did their actions change the course of English history? Well, Spencer Mizzen sat down with the medieval historian Helen Carr to discuss everything you wanted to know about the Peasants' Revolt. As usual in this series, our questions are drawn from popular internet search queries and those that you've submitted via social media. Right, I'm joined today by Helen Carr, a writer, historian and producer specialising in medieval history and public history. Helen's books include The Red Prince, John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster and What is History Now, which she wrote with Susanna Lipscomb. And her production credits include history documentaries for everyone from BBC Two to CNN. Helen, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. Helen, one of the most popular search engine questions is a fairly basic one, and that is, what was the Peasants' Revolt? I know this is a fairly hefty topic to cover, but I wonder whether, in the space of a few minutes, you could give us a quick overview of the Peasants' Revolt before we drill down into the uprising in more detail. Sure. Well, the Peasants' Revolt is such a fascinating um, event that, that took place in June 1381. And I think what is so fascinating about it is it's been so misrepresented and it's so so little, uh, you know, until fairly recently is is truly known about it. And its name in itself is down to that. So the rising, as I generally prefer to call it, was given the rather unfair moniker of the Peasants' Revolt by historian John Richard Green in his 1874 short history of the English people. And the term Peasants' Revolt really doesn't do it justice because it really does represent a misconception of, of this sort of conglomeration of pitchfork-wielding peasants, which it, that really wasn't the case. But it began not in 1381, it began uh, earlier in Northampton in a parliament in 1380, which was held in November, at which point a poll tax of 12 pence per adult was introduced, being the, the third poll tax in four years. And being taxed like that was really an impossible situation for the for the poor because they were charged as much as as the rich. And this resulted in a large-scale tax avoidance. And then things got ugly when commissioners of inquiry were dispatched around the country to enforce payment. And some of these people demonstrated violence and even sexual violence until until people fought back. So around the end of May, collectors in Essex were attacked uh, with bows and arrows. And in, in early June, a meeting was held in Essex where rebels vowed that they would destroy divers' lieges of the king and his common laws and all lordship. 
so basically to say that they were they were going to try and destroy this hierarchy. And similarly, Kent rebels met in Dartford and they held the same sort of meeting and then rebellion spread through Essex into Suffolk and, and Hertfordshire, Cambridgeshire, areas around the country. The, the most famous factions were the Essex insurgents and the Kent insurgents. And that's because they had sympathies with each other and they created a sort of, of partnership. Um, and in early June, uh, both parties marched on London and went via Canterbury, but also Rochester Castle, where they freed prisoners from the jail there and kidnapped Constable Sir John Newton. Um, and they also uh, possibly even just with pure purpose released a man called John Belling. And then they all arrived in London at Blackheath on the 11th of June, on the eve of, of Corpus Christi, a very important religious day. And then the next day, the King Richard II said he would meet with them and he sailed from the Tower of London, where he was staying at this point for his safety. And he was supposed to, to speak with them for a boat at Rotherhive. But when the scale of the rising was spotted, uh, with, you know, up to sort of 100,000 rebels, his, uh, his barge was turned around and it fled back up river to the tower. This angered the rebels and that's when the real destruction began. Uh, they entered the city over London Bridge. They stormed Fleet Prison, the um, Round Church and various wealthy properties. But it was the next day on the 13th of June, they did the most damage to the Savoy Palace, uh, which was the home of John of Gaunt, the king's uncle. And that was um, described as the fairest manor in the kingdom. And that was completely destroyed so Richard knew he had to meet with the rebels, so he arranged another parley at, at Mile End where he, he went to hear their terms. And when he went to do this, he left the Archbishop Simon Sudbury and the Chancellor Robert Hales inside the Tower of London because they were, according to the rebels, instigators of the oppression. Um, and this was actually ended up being a bit of a death sentence because a uh, sort of separate group of rebels got into the tower and they rather barbarically executed both men on Tower Hill. And then there was it followed. This was followed by a bit of a killing spree. London was a pretty dangerous place to be at that stage, until on the fifteenth of June, when everything ended. Uh, Richard met the rebels again at Smithfield, and this time there was a dispute between the rebel leader Wat Tyler, who we're going to talk about later, and a valet in the king's retinue. The fight broke out between them, and Wat Tyler was was killed. Richard then famously rode out in front of all the rebels. He quelled the rebellion and the rebels disbanded, but not without consequences. Thank you, Helen. That was a really good summary of what was a, sounds like a pretty turbulent period in English history. Now, I want to turn to a couple of questions now. The first one is from Andrea H., which was submitted on Twitter, and that is, should the Peasants' Revolt be connected with the Black Death? And then I also want to put another question to you, which was submitted on Instagram by SBH2004. And that is, were the peasants united by a shared ideal or were they driven by desperation? So I guess we could boil these two queries down to one question. And, and that is, what were the main causes of the, of the peasants' revolt? What drove thousands of people to march on London and vent their fury on the nobility, the church and the king himself? Yeah, they're both good questions and they're, they're certainly both accurate. Um, it was certainly to do with, with the Black Death. I mean, the, the revolt took place in a post-Black Death economy. It had a massive impact on the economy. In 1349, as a result of the Black Death, the Ordinance of Labourers was introduced by um, then King Edward III, 
This was introduced in order to regulate the rapidly rising cost of labour. If you think about the amount of people who died in the Black Death, you're talking to 50, some sorts of saving up to 60% of people, largely labouring classes. So you've got all these landowners who are relying on these labourers to work for a reasonably cheap fee to to generate income off their their land and and their property. So when that workforce is depleted by 50%, that's going to cause a massive problem, 50% if not more. So there's this huge rising cost in labour. And these surviving labourers try to gain higher wages for their services. So this ordinance was introduced to put a cap on these wages. And it was really meant to sort of push down certain classes from attempting to use these circumstances quite rightly to better themselves and it you know it wasn't even it wasn't just it wasn't just about wages it was even putting a cap on the way people could could dress it was all about regulating hierarchy because people because of the the massive death toll people were able to rise up the ranks in 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 such a way that it was making the the wealthy feel uncomfortable and threatened so there was more social mobility at the time then yeah, well, they were trying to hinder this sense of social mobility, but yes, there was because people were were able to charge more for their for their services, which is why there was such a massive decrease in serfdom at this at this point. So then, a few decades later, under the new king, the boy king Richard II, poor who had been forced to remain poor were, were taxed for the third time in four years. You know, it was raised to three groats for anybody over the age of fifteen, and these taxes were imposed due to a constant threat of war, and the the, the French were attacking the English coastline. So. That was used as a reason for the increase, but it also angered, angered the people. Um, and there was also this overwhelming belief that the king's government was corrupt. Um, Richard II was served by a, a, a continuous council. So it was elected members, uh, elected councillors who were set up in order to assist him in his minority, but they were generally pretty un, unpopular with the people. And when the taxes were raised, Initially, Robert Hales, who was the treasurer, wanted the tax to be split into two. So it was easier for people to pay, but the, the money was rolling in too slowly. So they decided, no, we're not, we're not going to do that. We're just going to go for one big, one big hit. Um, and these commissioners of inquiry were, were pretty brutal. And there's, you know, there's accounts of some of them actually checking girls' virginities to see if they were old enough to be to be paying tax, you know, because they could have uh, have, promi- uh, have sworn that they were under the age of fifteen. So, so it was a people were tre- treated pretty savagely. So, in answer to the second question, yes, people were pushed into action. Hamish Ross on Twitter, he asked, "Was replacing the king Richard II an object of the revolt?" So, I mean, yeah, just wonder if you give us a, a just a, a quick explanation of what the, the rebels hoped to achieve via the revolt. They never wanted to replace Richard. It was really the the officials and the government officials and the family members around Richard that they had the issues with. So particularly his uncle, John of Gaunt, the Chancellor, Archbishop Simon Sudbury, the Treasurer Robert Hales. These were all people that they saw were the instigators of their oppression rather than the king himself. They believed that the king was young. He was a boy king. He was. It was still believed that he was divinely appointed by God. So therefore, they didn't have the issue with him, but they wanted his counsellors to be removed. And that's really a trope of, of the medieval period. It wasn't ever really so much of an issue with the king. It was all, all of the 
resentment and rage was always placed on the king's counsellors and the men that he kept around him rather than the king himself. He was kind of the innocent victim and all of this and like a pawn to be moved around. But it was the it was the counsellors and, and and those who were advising him who were the targets really for the, for the rebels. And ultimately, they wanted fair treatment. What Tyler said that all men should be free, they wanted liberty, equality, the the banishment of serfdom and fair tax. And a major demand was the abolition of labour and and other services for holding land and their replacement by by flat rate rents. And, you know, it's important to say that the rebels included not, you know, they weren't just serfs. They were tenants with with land and and goods and, and, and abilities and they had their own sort of, yes, limited, but they did. Some of them did have their own wealth. You know, they held manorial offices, and so they had they had aspirations. So the frustration really was at the demands made on them by the sort of landlords. You know, the lords above them. Again, it was this. Yeah, I suppose it was this um, antagonism amongst the hierarchy. Your answer there just leads on perfectly to the next question, which was submitted by Natasha Lavender on Facebook. She asked, why is it called the Peasants' Revolt? As you've hinted, those involved in the uprisings may not have all come from what we'd like to call them the rebels' peasants. How accurate is that? I mean, there were some peasants, but I think what its moniker has done is given us an image of it being exclusively peasants. So it's people who were, you know, living amongst the filth who have suddenly risen up with their pitchforks against the lords who were sat up in their castles. And that's not that's not untrue, but it what it isn't what it isn't doing is factoring in the whole of the sort of middle class as you as you might call it. So I think that it is an unfair moniker, although there are accounts, so for example, uh Thomas Walsingham, who um was attached to he was, he was based in St. Albans, called them a conglomeration of plebeians, which I always think is quite a funny phrase. But there are other records which would describe the revolt more like a sort of rising in a warlike fashion. Um, and it was a real combination of people, you know, about 60,000 farmers, the low order clergy. So you had uh, also, you had people like parish priests, roofers, Fort Tyler being one of them, uh, Reeves, bailiffs, men and women. It was a real mix of people. And importantly as well, there was also a significant amount of ex-soldiers. So men who had served in France during the Hundred Years' War, who were no longer being paid for their services, they came back and they were involved, they were involved in, in the revolt as well. So it really is a complete mixture of people who are who are getting in, involved in it but as i as i said as well there were also there were also tenants you know these are people skilled laborers so it wasn't really a case of of it being peasants i think i would probably describe it more as a mixture of of um middle orders uh and people often who are very skilled and they had um their own businesses they had their own setups you know it wasn't it wasn't a case of these people being so poor that they were literally scrimping off the land. I think it was a it was a real combination. I mean, there were those people as well, but it was that was not exclusively peasants. Now you've mentioned the name uh, Watt Tyler a couple of times, and that's a name that would be familiar to many students of history. And that leads me to one of the questions I got here, which is a very popular internet search query, 
and that is who was the leader of the Peasants' Revolt. So I wonder if you could start off by introducing us a little bit to Wat Tyler, but also could you tell us about um, his fellow his fellow leaders who may not be as familiar to the people listening to this podcast? So we don't really know much about Wat Tyler other than his uh, direct involvement with the with the Peasants' Revolt and his rather grisly death at the very end of it. Um, but we do know that he was from Essex and that he emerged as a leader of, of the revolt, um, especially well, particularly the Essex faction quite early on, and that he was an, a, a tiler of houses, hence his surname. So he was literally Wat the Tyler. So that's really all we know about what Tyler, but he was also accompanied by John Ball, who was a priest of minor orders. And his role really was to give these rather electrifying sermons. So he really got everybody um, buoyed up and geared up. He was a levelling presence, so he, he was ag- against the nobility. Um, he didn't believe that that there should be a disparity in people due to their you know their birthright and their wealth and and status the idea of the of a social hierarchy was abhorrent to somebody like him and he said uh, there be no villains not gentlemen the lords be no greater masters than we be so as i said he's you know he's he's really leveling the people so would you see that as quite a modern perspective and sort of ahead of his time a little bit? Yeah, he was ahead of this t- his time because so much of the societal infrastructure of, of this period was around social hierarchy. That was really how everything was put together. You had this very clear order of things, of, ha- of the order of which people fit into, to the point where when I'm going back to the ordinance of labourers and various statutes that were put in place, that people couldn't even dress beyond their social status. I mean, he's kind of questioning the whole thing. And, you know, obviously he makes reference to the Bible and he and, and there's this famous quote that's always associated with the Peasants' Revolt, which is, you know, when Adam delved in Eve's span, who was then the gentleman? And that was really the point of, of John Ball. Uh, another figure that people might have heard of is a, is a man called Jack Straw. And Jack Straw is, he's a shady one because we're not actually even sure if he existed. <laughs> like, it's, it's possible that he was, um, there was another, uh, another leader but there's no evidence to really say that he was a clear person within, you know, within the revolt. There's nothing, there's no kind of, as opposed to what Tyler is very clear that he was a person who led this faction of rebels, but Jack Straw's been this sort of mystical figure that's sort of been associated, but we've never really kind of actually, there's not actually any real evidence to say he, he existed. What do we know about what Tyler's final moments Poor Watt Tyler. So it was all rather unfortunate. So it was at the very end of the Peasants' Revolt when Richard met with Tyler at Smithfield. And Tyler was representing this you know, giant horde of rebels who were across the field at Smithfield. And Richard was with his, his retinue. He had this entourage with him. And what, what Tyler did is he was, you know, he was thirsty. It was hot. He had been marching. It was, you know... He probably hadn't eaten or drunk very much. And he asked for a cup of water and he was given some water and he swilled water around his mouth to sort of wash his mouth and he spat the water out in front of the king. This caused uh, some of the more snobbish members of Richard's retinue to reprimand Tyler because they saw it as a cuss against the king to to sort of spit at the out this water in front of the king was was an act of offense and so they got into an argument they started to bicker 
And then a fight broke out. And what Tyler, it's, it's really uncertain exactly how he died. Some sources say that he was beheaded. Others say that he was just stabbed and then he was dragged off the field. But he was then, he was then killed um, by the mayor of London. And he, that sort of basically ended, ended the revolt, the death of the death of the leader. But this was all happening. If you're sort of standing from the perspective of the rebels, this was all happening quite far away and people couldn't really see what was going on. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. They were hung, drawn and quartered. Um, some heads were displayed on London Bridge and particularly in Essex, there was a rather savage pacification and, and there's accounts of people being being hung from trees. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So is there any indication that his death was pre-planned or do you think it was more spontaneous than that? Or is that pure speculation? Do we not know either way? I think it was pretty convenient um, for Richard and I think it was pretty convenient for the for the nobility who were there. I don't know if it was necessarily pre-planned, but I think that it had certainly been an accepted ending. I think that there was no way they were going to just let the leaders of this revolt walk off the field unreprimanded. There was always going to be a consequence to this. And so you'd say without without its figurehead, was the uprising always doomed to failure after that moment, would you say? Yeah, I mean, it was almost a bit of a Pied Piper of Hamlin situation and they just sort of cut off the head of the Pied Piper. Not that I'm trying to compare all of these rebels who were there for a very good reason to um, to rats, but it's just more of a case of, you know, with the figurehead cut off, they didn't really know what to do. And, and they, it was a moment of this would, could either go dramatically wrong for Richard and for the nobility and there would be a battle because of the number disparity, the rebels would have won that battle. So Richard took his, you know, t- he, it was a very uh, conscious move, it was a brave move for the young king, but he rode out in front of them and he confronted them as their king. They weren't going to respect any of his, you know, his the nobility around him. They weren't going to expect any respect any member of his retinue. They hated them. But for Richard, he was this divinely appointed boy king who they saw as this sort of slightly glowing young boy who was their savior it, it was that was that was really what their opinion was of was of him so when he rode forward and he addressed them as their king and promised to hear their grievances and said oh, i hear you i will make sure that all of these terms are arranged you will have your freedom so he he told them what they wanted to hear because ultimately he needed them to leave and that was the point. So he, that's what he did just really to, to buy him time. So quite a lot of our internet search queries are related to Richard wanting to know who the king was during the revolt. My question is, and you've kind of touched upon this already, is how would you rate his performance during the revolt? And what did the revolt do to his standing among the nobility and the people more generally? 
So for Richard, the Peasants' Revolt was a really critical and important event in his kingship. And I think it was the moment he went from his minority to acting as king. I think that that moment when he went and stood in front of the rebels at Smithfield, I think was the moment he realised his own kingship and he realised the power that he wield, that he had and he, he was able to wield. Uh, I think it went to his head very much. I think before that he had been a bit of a mummy's boy. His mother, Joan of Kent, was a very strong figure in his life. He's very close to his mother. He had been living under the um, shadow of his father, the Black Prince, who was a very warlike man. His grandfather, Edward, who was also very warlike, and Richard wasn't really. But what he did have from a very early age was a, this sense of superiority and this sense of divine right. And so when he could see that he was able to exercise that without the uh, the very levelling presence of his uncle, John of Gaunt, without any of his counsellors who were advising him against doing so. He, this was done, uh, you know, off his, off his own back. This was, he was demonstrating his own autonomy. I think that it was the moment where he went from boyhood into, you know, quote unquote, manhood. And it was after this that he started to fall out with his uncle and he started to demonstrate a sense of his of, of regality and kingship and he started to make his own decisions. Do you think, or is there any way of knowing from the sources whether he felt any sympathy for the rebels? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, he definitely... Short answer, no. When he, was, when he was chasing them down in Essex and hanging them from trees and stuff, I didn't really see any sympathy there. I think he was pretty clear about how he wanted how he wanted them to be treated. Okay, so now I want to turn to a question that we had submitted on Twitter from NLK, and that is, what were the after effects of the revolt on John of Gaunt, who we've mentioned a couple of times in the interview already? Um, so John of Gaunt seems to have been a real hate figure for the peasants. Why was that? And what happened to him after the rebellion? Yeah. Oh my goodness. The rebellion was huge for John of Gaunt, like massive, as, as massive as it was for Richard, although on a more negative level. It was like Richard kind of had his moment in of glory, whereas John of Gaunt was sort of knocked down a peg or two. So John of Gaunt wasn't actually there during the Peasants' Revolt, luckily for him. He was up in Berwick on Tweed and he was negotiating with the Scots, which was something that he did regularly. He was used a lot on these diplomatic exercises up in Scotland. He was a hate figure for the rebels for, for well, it goes back quite a long time. It goes back to the Good Parliament, which took place in 1376, while his father was still alive. And John of Gaunt really was the figurehead of this parliament, which was... Um, he was forced to hear a lot of grievances from the commons, which resulted in a sort of purging of, the, of royal government. And, and at this point, there was a lot of corrupt officials who were, you know, kicked out of government. But then John of Gaunt became particularly unpopular because later on, he uh, actually kind of put them back in place. So people didn't like that. He also fell out with the, ch with the church, particularly with the Bishop of London. So the people of London particularly did not like John of Gaunt. He was incredibly unpopular. He was also unpopular because he was self-titled King of Spain by right of his wife, Constance of Castile. So he had this palace, the Savoy Palace, which I mentioned earlier, that was filled with, with Spaniards and he was calling himself king. And it was very confusing for people and people didn't respond favourably to that. Um, in fact, during the revolt, there was a, 
uh, a chant that was allegedly shouted, which was, we will have no king named John. So there was a, maybe this rumor and overriding fear that he was going to usurp Richard being you know, his young nephew. I mean, that just falls again. It's just another sort of trope of medieval England, isn't it? The evil uncle kicking out his nephew and taking his place. So there was that fear. What was the result of the of this, all of this for John of Gaunt? Well, it was pretty catastrophic. He had his main seat of power completely destroyed. The, the Savoy Palace was broken into all of his belongings were destroyed in a pyre that they built in the Great Hall. Gaunt, because he was trying to get over to Castile, he was constantly mustering uh, arms to 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 lead a campaign into Castile. His brother was actually uh, had just was preparing to leave, so he had he was actually storing gunpowder in the Savoy Palace at the time. Which is you get where I'm going here. The um the so the the these barrels of gunpowder were ignited. I don't believe they knew that that was gunpowder inside these barrels, but it was a that was the result uh, of the Savoy Palace basically being worse hit and worse destroyed than any other building in London because they did actually roll these barrels onto the pyre that they'd ignited in in the hall. Yeah, so he lost his palace, the Savoy, which was the seat, the main seat of Lancastrian power. I mean, this went way back to Edmund Crouchback. So this was like a kind of, uh, it was a generational property and it was, I think that was a huge blow for him and he never rebuilt it. And that's significant, the fact that he never rebuilt it. We also see a, Total one like one eighty in his character after the peasants' revolt. He uh, another reason he was unpopular was that he had a mistress called Catherine Swinford, who he had a very blatant love affair with, and people didn't like that, particularly the church. So he ended that relationship quite quickly after the revolt, and he seemed to go all pious, and he basically was very apologetic and very humbled. And he really stayed away as much as he could from court politics. And his death, his his whole focus, his attention just turned towards Castile. And his interest was in going to try and gain his seat in Castile, his kingship in Castile. And I, th- I think that he didn't really want much to do with English politics at this stage. And he spent a lot of time up in Scotland for, for Richard on behalf of the king and negotiating truces up there on the borders. He kind of made himself scarce then from London after. after More scarce, yeah. yeah. He just, every time he went to London, it was problematic. Okay. Now, um, Anne Maloney on Facebook asks, what role did women play in the Peasants' Revolt? So we have, I don't think we've, ma- we've mentioned one woman yet in, in this chat. I mean, what influence did they have on the uprising? Yeah, women were involved in the uprising. So women certainly went along and they were in London and they were part of the mass of rebels. They were part of the number. They were involved as both victims and oppressors. So as victims, there's an example of a, you know, from me looking outside of London because the revolt happened across the country. There was a um, prioress in the Benedictine convent in Caro, or uh, convent of Caro, sorry, which was in uh, just outside of Norwich, um, and she was called Margaret de de Eng or de Ing. And on the eighteenth of June, so this is slightly after revolting London has ended. This was when you know there were pockets of rebellions happening across the country. The main one happened in London, and then you sort of saw these mini uprisings happen elsewhere. She came into contact with a band of rebels led by some men, uh, Jeffrey Lister, a man called John de Trunch. And they were on route to Great Yarmouth. 
And around the same time, there was another group of rebels, but these were tenants of nearby Roxham Manor. And they attacked the Priory and they were led by a man called Adam Smith and Henry Stanford. And in both of these men were, they were, I suppose you call them leading, te- like kind of, yeah, leading tenants from Roxham. So the, it's a bit confusing because the manor was owned by the Priory. So there was obviously some kind of disagreement going on between the Priory and the manor. But anyway, they used the revolt as an opportunity to threaten the Priory and threaten those who live there. So they they threatened Margaret with death. It was quite extreme and must have been terrifying for her. Um, and the, what they wanted her to do was ha- was give them the deeds in the court rolls of, of the of the priory, which were probably containing information about the about their roles within the manor or payments or or something like that. So there must have been some kind of evidence within that that they didn't want that to exist. So they burned these documents. So women and women were targeted elsewhere as as well. And I imagine, you know, because there were it was violent, I'm sure that women were victims of that, of that violence. There was also, I suppose, the Queen Mother, who there's quite a, a funny story that when the rebels broke into the Tower of London, they went up to her bedroom and uh, she was in there. And this is root because there's other sources that say she wasn't there. So then allegedly they went in and, in and sat on her bed and gave her a kiss. And it was so traumatic for her, she fainted. So there's that story as well. But then there's also a woman called Joanna Ferrer, who was led this group of insurgents into the Tower of London. And it was under her orders that the Archbishop uh, Simon Sudbury and Robert Hales were dragged out of the Tower and executed. So there's a few examples of different roles that women played within, within the revolt. But I definitely recommend, there's a great source if people really want to look into the detail of the, of the real individuals that um, were part of this revolt. And this is where information such a, a, about Margaret of in Cairo comes from and it's a source called the people of 1381 and it's a new project that was completed i believe last year and there's loads of information on there and anecdotes about all these different people who weren't just necessarily the nobility who were involved in the revolt so i'd recommend that as a a point of reference Darth muller on twitter wants to know why did the rebels slaughter foreigners in london yeah this is a good question because london was a pretty multicultural city i mean um as it is today you know as a center for trade um, there's lots going on. There's a busy port, which, you know, you've obviously got loads of different people from different nationalities coming into the port and staying in London. But from a more domestic point of view, it there it was quite ghettoized in certain places. Um, and there's a particular reference in the Peasants' Revolt, which is where this, this question will come from, that the Flemish were subject to brutality. And the example that is often referred to, particularly in the case of the Peasants' Revolt, was um, a horrible scenario that took place with a group of Flemish people. So the, the, the rebels went into this, the Flemish ghetto. Um, so this would be around the King's Cross kind of Farringdon area, North London area. So uh, a group of people were pushed inside a church. Doors were closed. They were barred. And the, the church was torched. So it killed everybody inside. That's quite a grim episode, isn't it, in, in the uprising? Yeah, that's a point of the uprising where, you know, the point of it is overturned. It becomes a sense, it becomes really an opportunity for vandalism and cruelty and brutality 
and mob rage rather than with an, an agenda to do good, which was what I do believe it was set out to do. And I believe that the, the leaders of it maintained that to an extent. Um, obviously, not so much when they're chopping off the head of the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury. It was meant to do good, and that obviously was was not at all. Why was this? And the only thing that I can really put this down to was was bigotry that is still demonstrated today. And these these sort of fraction of Flemish were unpopular. That's possibly due to wealth, possibly due to disagreement over trade networks. I'm not entirely sure what the vindication was, but I believe that it was it was a sort of bigotry, bigoted attack. That incident obviously occurred in London. The the main kind of landmark milestone moments of the revolt, most of them seem to have occurred in London, but it wasn't only in the capital, was it? I mean, Gareth um, Taylor on Facebook asks, was just wondering about the geography of the revolt. Is that fair? I mean, were other parts of England and even, well, Scotland and Ireland at all affected? Yeah, it definitely did did happen elsewhere in the country. And there was a rumour of uh, a band of 10,000 rebels or or something marching north to um, remove John of Gaunt from the borders and drag him back down south. So it was definitely, it was snowballing. There were pockets of rebellions in minor towns and villages around the country, but it was, I don't think there's much evidence of it being in the far north. There was fear in Pontefract Castle of rebels coming and attacking the castle there. But it seemed to be that there was more of a resounding fear of rebellion and revolt kind of escalating throughout the country. So as far as I'm aware, and there, there will be more research on this elsewhere, but as far as the sort of aspects of the role that I have worked on, there was there's certainly a, f- a fear in cities around the country towards the north that the, the revolt was coming, but it never really reached them. So, for example, Leicester, they actually, the people of Leicester armed themselves. They mustered up on Gartree Hill um, in Leicester and they they waited for the rebels to arrive, but but nobody ever did. But the rebellion really was at its, I'd say, at its its strongest in the south, in the southeast, pushing into East Anglia uh, territory as well, but less so in the north. I could be wrong. There, there, there may have been some small scale rebellions elsewhere, but they, they were pretty quickly put out. There was there was none that really sort of were striking. There is a great example though of the Bishop of Norwich, who, when there was some some rebels in in Norwich who were using the rebellion to embark on their own in their own escapades, that he apparently took up arms and terrified the rebels by gnashing his teeth like a great boar. And uh, he had like a he had like two swords or something and managed to sort of quell the rebellion pretty quickly. <laughs> so I quite like that example. But yeah, that, so that's what I mean about all of these little kind of pockets of rebellions. But there wasn't anything quite to the extent of what happened in London, no. So as you mentioned, the, the, the uprising was ultimately put down. What was the authorities' response over the following months or years? How, how, how brutal was their revenge? It's a real sort of pacification. So the rebels that could be caught were caught and they were executed. They were hung, drawn, quartered. Um, some heads were were displayed on London Bridge. And in Essex in particular, there was a 
particularly in Essex, there was a rather savage pacification, and and there's there's there was uh, accounts of people being being hung from trees um, as as their part of being involved in in the revolt. So it was it the point was proved by the authority that this was they you know they didn't want this to happen again there was no way this was going to be allowed to happen again but i also i do think that there was some progression made through the, through the revolt in itself you know no poll tax was levied again for almost 300 years and it's possible that there was a significant impact on the decline of the of of practices like serfdom but it was it, it was also you know it there's been such a legacy that has been left by the revolt as well it well into the next century it was referenced and jack there was this that's where i think the mythical figure of jack straw comes into play here's a question from marie samvig on social media and this is kind of a, a related question she asked after all was said and done was anything accomplished now you've kind of already answered that question to to a degree but is it is do you how did it change the country? How how was England a different place after the revolt as compared to how, how it was before? Certainly in the latter years of Richard's reign, so, you know, leading up to 1399, there was, well, as I've already said, no poll tax was levied again, so that's pretty significant. But there was fear of uprising. So, I mean, my expertise is obviously John of Gaunt, and there's evidence of if there was any inclination of unsettled in an unsettled environment, he was pretty quick to leave. <laughs> um, so he he often went places wearing a breastplate underneath his clothes. There was a deliberate effort to of to de-escalate any kind of social tension um, in those years, but I think. The major impact I've probably kind of covered in that, you know, the fact that you've got a tax being raised four ta- uh, three times in four years, and then it's not raised again at all for three hundred years, goes to goes to show that there was a fear of the same thing happening again, and there were there were for future revolts, there were future revolts in the next century for sure. Um, this wasn't kind of the the last quote-unquote, peasants' revolt that took place. Um, But it's definitely the one that has the lasting legacy that it does. And finally, Helen, here's a question from MHFQ on Instagram. They ask, how have interpretations of the peasants' revolt changed over the years? Well, I think it went from a pretty punitive account of it being these filthy, vengeful bloodthirsty serfs who all they could, you know, who anything they could get their hands on, be it a pitchfork or a sword, they would use that to basically just watch the world burn. And I think it's gone from that where the the nobility and the, you know, the, the elite were victims of the revolt to there being a much more balanced view on what the rebellion was all about. So if you read some of the earlier, more sort of antiquarian historians' accounts of the revolt, it was very much like this, that these these peasants, quote-unquote, were sort of meant to be quite, you should be fearful of these characters. They were, they were, all, they were almost a caricature, whereas 
Today, I mentioned this fantastic database, which the the people of 1381, you can actually go and see who these people were who were involved in the, in the revolt. And that really does shed a level of humanity to it. And I think that that is what I, where how I would say interpretations have changed, that it has it's become its whole moniker, the Peasants' Revolt, has been te- has become less believable. It's being taken with a pinch of salt, and people are starting to see that actually maybe there was purpose and reasonable reason for this uprising, and maybe good came of it, and good was intended from it, and it wasn't just a case of of bloodthirsty revenge. That was the medieval historian and broadcaster Helen Carr. Helen's most recent book is a biography of the medieval power broker John of Gaunt, and it's called The Red Prince. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.